Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with the contributors to the newly published volume, Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust, published in London by Bloomsbury Publishing, 2022. This volume has been edited by Susan Michalczyk, John Michalczyk, and Michael Bryant. It is an honor to be with you today for the purpose of this dialogue and for the purpose of this conversation. In addition to the editors of the volume, I am also being joined by some of the contributors to that volume. In addition to the editors, Michael Bryant and John Michalczyk, I am also joined today by Dr. Utmar Plockinger, who is a freelance writer, and by Professor Magnus Brechtken, who is Deputy Director of the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich. Thank you for your availability, and thank you for your time. To begin, can you kindly each tell us about yourselves? What formative events in your lives inspired your scholarly journeys? and inspired your interest in Mein Kampf. Shall I jump in, Ari? Sure, please. Yeah, then, um, my name is Michael Bryant. I'm a professor of history and legal studies at Bryant University and an adjunct professor of law for Creighton University. Uh, been teaching in this field since the early 2000s um, in terms of formative events in my life. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. I, I think there probably are two of them. Uh, when I was already in high school, I discovered a, a book um, by Simon Wiesenthal. Um, the, I think it was called The Murderers Among Us, which was about, um, at that time, written, of course, by Simon Wiesenthal. It became a very famous uh, Nazi hunter after the war. And uh, just describing the numbers of Nazi fugitives who had fled Germany after 1945 in efforts to, you know, to locate them and bring them to justice, it left a, uh, quite an impression on me at the time. And then uh, much, much later, when I was a um, an exchange student studying German theology, of all things, at the University of Göttingen on a, a scholarship in, in um, 1988, I was trying to improve my German and uh, finding trying to find books in particular that I could read and understand. And I was always interested in World War II. I had a, a great uncle who uh, was killed at Normandy. Uh, my father would always talk about him when I was growing up. So I had this interest in World War II. So I, I picked up a book by Ernst Klee. Uh, in es Euthanasie im Innerstadt, uh, the, the Nazi euthanasia in the uh, the Nazi state. It was a quite a, quite a famous book uh, among uh, scholars in this field, and uh, I picked it up really because it was um, it was fairly straightforward in its writing style. I was able to understand it. You know, it's much easier to understand Clay, um, uh, who, who wrote like a journalist, and I think he came from a journalistic background. Than reading, you know, Karl Barth or somebody like that. So I, 
I spent a lot of time trying to improve my German reading clay and through clay that I was exposed to to the T4 program. And I, I just kind of bottled at it at the time. And, it, and one book led to another and I continued to, to read deeply about this. And so eventually I, I launched a career as a lawyer and my interests actually were more in the area of World War II and uh, Nazi crimes. And so I took the GI Bill from the Air Force uh, that I had, was entitled to, and uh, went back for a PhD. And you know, as they say, the rest is history. I got a PhD in modern German history with a focus on the Holocaust and the post-war trials of, of the Holocaust. Thank you for sharing. Magnus, why don't you go next? Uh, okay, I can do, yes. Um, I, I was a pupil in the 1970s and uh, until 1983. And during this period, um, it really started uh, to become a topic of the Third Reich National Socialism at uh, schools. And uh, there was, for example, a competition by the federal president uh, to compete um, as a school class, or as a school group on certain topics. And we participated, for example, on uh, the social history of the Third Reich on this. And so a lot of people in this period by the late 1970s and early 1980s started to dig up uh, the regional and local history of the Third Reich, started to interview uh, surviving witnesses and so on. And uh, I always had a personal interest in all these um, from the political uh, historical uh, point of view. And so when I, I finished my, my school, uh, I, uh, of course, I decided it was a natural decision to study history, politics, philosophy, and and to deal with these questions and and to to build the bridge directly to Mein Kampf. I when I started uh, studying history, uh, the history of National Socialism uh, was uh, shaped by the controversy about uh, whether or not Hitler was a decisive person in this in the Third Reich and whether it was more about his intentions. Uh, and ideological drive, or whether it was about the the functional competition between uh, structural uh, entities in the Third Reich, which drove this radicalization forward. And so from the very beginning, it was very obvious for me that you have to read uh, the sources on all sides. And Mein Kampf is, of course, a very decisive source to understand Adolf Hitler and to understand his role in uh, shaping the ideological uh, structure of national socialism in general and to put the ideological uh, structure into practice after 1933. And so from that on, uh, I, I kept uh, um, staying in this kind of research until we, uh, in 2012, started uh, the critical edition of Mein Kampf, which, which was a gap in, in all the critical uh, works edited uh, on the search Reich. And then, of course, Otmar Plöckinger can can take this on, I think. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I will follow Magnus Brechtkin. <clears throat> well, uh, as I was a, a school boy and a young student, we had a huge discussion in Austria about uh, history and, 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 and the involvement of Kurt Waldheim, uh, who was running for the presidential election in Austria and who was former General Secretary of the United States. Uh, and the discussion was how much and how far and in uh, which aspect he was involved in, in, in uh, war crimes during his time in the Deutsche Wehrmacht. And uh, it, it was strange to see and to hear how he argumented. He, he always tried to 
argument. He did his duty. He did nothing bad, and uh, he just followed his instructions and orders. Uh, and that was a strange thing to me, uh, just uh, ignoring uh, historical uh, scientific uh, approaches and just arguing about uh, I did my duty, I did what I had to do, and not reflecting on his history. That uh, really uh, irritated me how a uh, reasonable man avoids any kind of reflections about his history. Uh, and that was a strange thing to me. And that's when my interesting, uh, my interest started in, in uh, National Socialist and Second World War and uh, particularly Mein Kampf. And, uh, and there was a personal aspect as well. My grandfather stayed for a few uh, time uh, for, for some years in the uh, Mannerheim in Wien together with Adolf Hitler. So he knew him on a personal level. He forgot his strange guy, as he called him later on. Uh, but when he got famous, he remembered, well, that was the one uh, which uh, he had been uh, living together in, in Wien at the Mannerheim. Uh, and uh, this com combination of, of uh, historical uh, and personal uh, aspects lead me, uh, led me to, to National Socialism uh, and particularly, of course, to Mein Kampf where when I started in, in the middle of the 1990s to deal with the book. And ever since uh, the book didn't leave me or I didn't leave the book, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, well, that's my part. Okay, I'll finish up by saying, Thank you. Uh, you know, my journey, you know, has a lot of zigzagging through it. Uh, it started when I was very much interested in fascism during the Spanish Civil War uh, with the Condor Legion and with Guernica and then propaganda and art and film during the Spanish Civil War. And then I gradually moved. That was 1972 when I completed my uh, doctoral thesis at Harvard and then published it. But it was 1980 when I began a thorough study of how uh, Germany, the Holocaust, were presented in film. So I did a type of archaeological study of all the original films coming out of uh, the period right before the end of the war and uh, right after the war. And I presented it at a conference uh, probably around 1982 or, or so. Uh, and then I began a film career in 1991. A student in class studying the Bible began asking questions. The first semester was the Hebrew Testament, the second, the Christian Testament, old and new. And she asked in 1991, why are the Jews presented as the heroes in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Testament, and the good guy and uh, in the New Testament, they are the villains, especially in Matthew and John's Gospel. So we examined that, and it led to our first documentary film with Holocaust survivors, German scholars, the cross and the star Jews, Christians, and the Holocaust. And from then on, I began, you know, a lot of my work in genocide, Holocaust studies, ethnic cleansing, and 
I produced maybe seven or eight books on uh, the subject and maybe the same number of films that dealt specifically with that among the 25 other doc, uh, 25 documentaries on conflict resolution, disabilities around the world. So most recently, uh, I completed a film about two German brothers in post-war America, the Steinhoffs, one coming to America having his Nazi background whitewashed and the assistant to Werner von Braun uh, becoming an international celebrity, especially in the Science Hall of International Space Hall of Fame, and the second brother, more or less looked as as the villain, the submarine commander, uh, who surrendered in Boston, in New Hampshire, and then committed suicide in Boston. So my recent studies on uh, Julia Stryker will be among my later ones. So it's a journey of about 50 years focused on a lot of this material. And, you know, I, you know, some people ask me, why am I fascinated by this? And, you know, I say that this is an important period to study. So I feel that, you know, my time and energy uh, are worth it to understand more fully you know, what had happened in our history that many people do not want to look at. What inspired you to prepare this book? What would you like readers to take away from the volume you prepared? From this volume, you know, which is really a compendium of several different outlooks. It's very interdisciplinary, whether it was art, music, you know, political science, religion. All of these, I think, will be some kind of inspiration, we hope, that was our goal, to have our readers look more deeply into each of our chapters. Mine was on race and blood, you know, and each of the chapters by uh, Magnus Othmar, Michael, uh, and the others were basically stepping stones to further information. And I believe that this will help us to get, uh, you know, more individuals interested. And I feel that, you know, Michael has told me that there are a lot of readers who have already begun to understand what our goal was. Don't you agree? hundred percent. Yeah. I, I would just add to, to John's, um, John's description here that, that the original, inspiration behind it really went back to um, to the republication by the Munich Institute for Contemporary History of their uh, their edition in 2016 of, of Mein Kampf, which of course had not been published in Germany since uh, the 1940s. And um, I remember reading you know about this in, in the uh, international press uh, leading up to the, the republication of the book in 2016. And John, John and I were working on some other projects together at the time, and I had mentioned to him that that we might want to consider doing something about this um, from a, a scholarly standpoint in order to mark the, the reissue of the book. And John is a very uh, uh, enterprising guy who likes to actualize plans and is a master at doing that. So he took the took the initiative and um, and organized a symposium at which uh, you know, some some fairly prominent scholars, including Magnus and uh, and Otmar, 
uh, participated and I, I gave a paper as well at this at this conference and then we bundled those together and published them then as uh, as our book Mein Kampf and the Holocaust. The idea actually came, you know, after you know Mike and I talked about it, and I met with Christian, who was one of the editors of the you know, 2000 page, 2016 critical edition. And he had moved on and it was incredible that Magnus replaced him with brilliant ideas for, you know, the presentation at our conference and then especially in the history of the Institute for Contemporary History. So I think it was fortuitous that you know, we had a, a link with the Institute and with, of course, Otmar's, you know, incredible knowledge of this subject. So I think, you know, we invested a lot of time and energy into this project with a conference and a book and then a film. And I believe that, you know, many people have already seen or read the text uh, maybe if I if I may, I would like to add the German perspective uh, on this and why this all uh, was produced and and triggered uh, so much international uh, repercussions. Um, it was known for a very long time that uh, in 2015 the copyright would end of Mein Kampf, and there had been discussions on the question of whether or not Mein Kampf should be published in a critical edited version um, since decades. All texts, all speeches, all writings and documents by Hitler until 1933 had already been published in a critical edition by our institute. Uh, this had been finished in 2008 and already then one part of this is so Hitler's so-called second book, uh, which was uh, originally uh, found by Gerhard Weinberg in the beginning of the 1960s and published then as um, the follow-up of Mein Kampf. And when it was put uh, as a publication into this series of, of publications on Hitler's writings, it was not allowed to call it Hitler's second book because it would have triggered too much attention as the then copyright holders thought. The same was even more um, applicable for uh, Mein Kampf itself. And that's why uh, we had long discussions uh, until I joined the Institute in, in uh, July 2012. And in August 2012, we put together the team of the uh, for the critical edition because we, we were uh, absolutely convinced that it was necessary when the copyright ended that there should be a critical edition and not just an open market for a reprint in, in what people might see as a just the text of Mein Kampf. There had been 65, 70 years of research and these 70 years of research had to be reflected in, in a volume that should be available to, to the public, be it national, be it international. And that's why this team was uh, was shaped or, or founded in 2012. And that's why this team did an, uh, an excellent job. Uh, Otmar was part of the team, Christian Hartmann, which you've already mentioned, and several uh, others. And it was absolutely clear that we have to finish uh, by the end of 2015 so that by the 
1st of January 2016, this volume has to materialize. And thanks to um, all the efforts by Otmar and all the others, uh, this uh, was uh, happening. But that is, so to speak, not the end. We want, of course, that this kind of research that is reflected in these more than 3,500 3, comments, which are part of the critical edition, should transfer into the international discourse on it. In, in the English-speaking world, there is still uh, the discussion shaped by the translations of the 1930s. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that this kind of knowledge, which has been produced after 1945, which, and which is summarized more or less in our critical edition, shall transfer through conferences and through books like uh, the ones by John and uh, Michael, which uh, they produced. And uh, so we are very grateful that this kind of uh, transfer is now possible through this kind of uh, discussions. What message or messages do you hope to convey to readers through your book? What story or stories does your book tell? Can you tell us what the primary content in the book? Would someone feel comfortable? You mean the critical edition or you mean the uh, edited volume on the conference? Um, the edited volume on the conference. On the, Yeah, I think that's for John and Michael much more. Yeah, yeah. Ron, would you like to tackle it? And if not, I'll, I'll jump in. Okay, why don't you, and then I'll, I'll add something. Yeah, I, I think that John has alluded to uh, one of the primary goals of the book, which was to, uh, to commemorate the republication of the book of Mein Kampf, along with the extensive scholarly footnotes, which are themselves a book in their own right. And I'm hoping at some point, that we can somehow make these uh, these materials available in an English translation because they are so superbly done. Um, what what the institute essentially did was to to interrogate so many of the claims that Hitler that Hitler made in Mein Kampf and to hold them up to critical scrutiny. So we thought with with our volume that we would continue this process of interrogation of the text and to do so, as John said just a few minutes ago from a variety of perspectives. And so we had you know, some of the world's leading experts in this field, including Magnus and, and Otmar, but we also had journalists uh, con contributing to the effort. We had political scientists, mu uh, musicologists. Uh, John is, an, is a world-renowned expert in film um, and so forth. We had, had multiple perspectives. Uh, uh, we, we had one, one scholar uh, who was actually from Ukraine, but was teaching as a professor in uh, in Germany who is a uh, an expert in education and pedagogy so she tried to address the issue of of Mein Kampf uh, in terms of its pedagogical value so we tried to tackle the Susanna Heschel is another person an expert in religion very very well-known figure here in the United States and and abroad in the field of religious studies and she so she tried to tackle the 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 importance of Mein Kampf from a religious standpoint and uh, really, that was our, our objective, was to try to look to look at Mein Kampf from a variety of, of viewpoints in order to, to sort of triangulate the subject, and then to drill down even further to see what the relevance of Mein Kampf might be for today, especially uh, as it pertains to the Holocaust and uh, the linkages, if any, between Mein Kampf, which was written in the mid-1920s, and in uh, the occurrence of the Holocaust and the persecution of the Jews in the, the 1930s, and of course, 
culminating in the uh, in the final solution in genocide by the 1940s. John, did you want to address this at all? Yes. You know, I think that one of the voices that is very important to add to our discussion is that of David Crow. Uh, David Crow was going to be part of it, but uh, he's very much involved in completing his work on Raphael Lemkin that he's been working on for a few years, and also Emily Schindler. So he's part of uh, a German documentary on the latter, on uh, Frau Schindler. So his voice is very important because you know, he has an understanding, a very, you know, profound grasp of several of the languages that were, you know, necessary in, in the Slavic area to help with understanding, I would say, especially the protocols of the elders of Zion. And I was doing more study on that recently for the German translation in around 1905, and you know how it influenced my current work on Julius Stryker's uh, iconography of caricatures and of Jewish images that you know were actually able to lead him to the Nuremberg trials, and you know I read through. You know, David Crow's work on the protocols and his sort of study of the evolution of many of these ideas. And some of them, you know, I didn't know at all, but I, I was able to sort of bring up my grasp of the history of this text and how it influenced, you know, the iconography of uh, Julius Stryker and some of the commentaries you know, you know, even in, you know, Mein Kampf. So, you know, I feel that his uh, text in our edition uh, was important to add. What does Mein Kampf reveal about Adolf Hitler's early life? Maybe Otter? Yeah, that's a, a question which is discussed since the 1920s, contemporary critics of Hitler uh, took his uh, a personal story, which he tells in Mein Kampf from his early times in in in, in, in his family uh, up to his time in the uh, First World War, and uh, well, it's not only the question what does he tell us, but also what he doesn't tell us and how he tells things uh, from a just a. Uh, just looking for which details and which facts does he tell us, it's very poor. He is not very precisely uh, in his uh, description of the, his family. He leaves many aspects out. Uh, he's uh, even more uh, vague in his history in, uh, in Vienna and his time in Vienna. And uh, also his description of his uh, time in the uh, First World War is very uh, general and, and not really very uh, uh, fed up with uh, informative facts and, and, and details. Uh, so it's uh, more the kind how he presents himself, not what he presents. He presents himself as a kind of uh, chosen uh, person, which is chosen by the 
sometimes he calls it the fate, uh, nature, whatever. He's chosen uh, to uh, to to free the German people from his historical a bad situation from the uh, consequences of the Versailles Treaty and so on. Uh, so he presents himself as a kind of so uh, he sal salvator, how to call it, as a a person which is has a mission. Uh, everything what he's talking about his, his person in Mein Kampf uh, has to see in the point of view uh, he has a mission uh, from from fate to free the German people, to free the Aryans, the, the Germans, whatever. Uh, and that's how you have to read it. You shouldn't look for facts and for details in Mein Kampf. Uh, he always tries to present himself as he wants to be seen. And he doesn't tell his story uh, how it was. Well, in general, that's, uh, of course, a, a kind of thing which many uh Politicians too, when they write about themselves, political autobiographies usually do that. They try to present him from present themselves in the best light. That's understandable. But Hitler goes far uh, beyond this one. He tries to present him as a person which is chosen by fate to uh, to free the Germans, free the German people, uh, and to uh, fulfill his mission in history. Uh, and that's what uh, the book tells about the person Hitler and how he sees him or how he wants to be seen. I must uh, remember, uh, as, as Otmar said, this book was written in 1924, 25, 26, so to speak, with the publication. And Hitler has an audience in mind, uh, which is the general public of his time. He constructs his life in a way that those people who shall read this book in 1926 will see him, as Ottmar pointed out, as the Messiah who has come to uh, bring together the, the German people suffering from all what has been developed over the years before, mainly the First World War, um, the Treaty of Versailles, um, all the experiences of violence, all the parliamentary uh, uh, combustions, the um, uh, inflation, uh, the hyperinflation of 1923 and so on. He puts himself forward as the one who will make an end to all this and all his personal story that he tells in Mein Kampf is shaped to... to, to um, convince his readers that uh, this has always been in history and in the making all his life and that now in 1926 they have before him uh, before them him as the person whom they should follow for this kind of uh, liberation and salvation as, as Otmar has pointed out. Yeah, coming from the visual point of view I also see that Hitler tries to present himself in the beginning and end of his career <clears throat> as the artiste. You know, Hitler in Vienna, especially with his failed attempt to enter into the School of Art, uh, and then his Führer Museum with Albert Speer, you know, and all the way through, he's very much concerned about the visual image of himself. You know, first, as you say, the Messiah, but I think one of the striking images is the poster art developed around 
uh, Hitler. And the knight in shining armor is one that is often used. And I think that, you know, even in, you know, the text of my comp, he speaks about how art, you know, sometimes taken over by the Jews, especially in uh, Antarctica Kunst, but also the fact that, you know, art, you know, it should be something that stimulates people. And he uses that along with Goebbels, you know, Ministry of Propaganda and Enlightenment to bring out, you know, how the image influences people. So I think the visual image of Hitler all the way through, say, Triumph of the Will, Olympia, that uh, Lenny Riefenstahl was trying to, you know, uh, replicate the glory uh, and the power of Hitler's image was very significant. If I may add, uh, one one has a twofold or two perspectives on this kind of art. The one, as John has just explained, the very important propaganda aspect to uh, put Hitler into the center of all the National Socialist imagery and as the person to whom everything is is going to, uh, working towards the Führer uh, in, in every aspect of life, so to speak. And the other aspect is uh, that this kind of, of not only art, but also architecture and so on, is a reflection of uh, the racial struggle uh, and the claim as put down, for example, in Mein Kampf, but in many other uh, speeches and so on as well, that uh, there is a racial hierarchy of who can produce a real art and art on the highest level and he is uh, convinced or he claims uh, Hitler in Mein Kampf and in other texts that it's only the Aryan race which is really productive in art and that's why after 1933 a lot of effort is put in uh, shaping all kinds of um, arts particularly in, in the building uh, industry, so to speak, because if in the end um, the the buildings of the Third Reich, be it Speer, be it Ruf, be it uh, others, is uh, some sort of ideology, ideology set in stone. It shall reproduce the self-image of the National Socialism as the overwhelming uh, superior kind of um, global uh, capacity in all sorts of uh, uh, productive areas. To reinforce what, uh, what Magnus just said, the film Architecture of Doom is something that really captures everything that you said, uh, Magnus, and because it starts with his interest in opera with Rienzi uh, and talking about the purity and uh, the importance of the purity of blood and art, you know, was something that fascinated and almost obsessed Hitler, you know, right through his life. And I think that film, Architecture of Doom, with some of that grand pageantry with the ideas of uh, the grandeur of Rome reflected in the Third Reich's architecture, you know, it seemed to bolster the image of this, you know, new, uh, new Reich. And I think that this, you know, contributed greatly to, 
you know, the, you know, the iconographic image of who Hitler was. You know, when they film him, you know, with the camera below him looking up, he is he's in this sort of posture uh, that shows you that he has this imminent power. How are women presented in Mein Kampf? Can you comment on the statements and silences surrounding women in the text? Yeah, well, I would say women doesn't don't play a very significant role in Mein Kampf. Uh, they are a kind of, of, of second-class citizens, uh, which uh, doesn't have a uh, no political role. Uh, so political decisions, uh, the leading uh, levels of of the yeah. of the government should be mainly uh, uh, used by by men. So political significance uh, you can't find anywhere in Mein Kampf. Uh, women are reduced to the uh, social and uh, to the uh, family affairs in Mein Kampf. So they are reduced to uh, bringing up uh, children, giving birth to children, uh, and uh, making, uh, if it uh, is allowed to put it a little bit statistical, uh, satirically, uh, make a nice home for the man. Uh, who comes home from work or for the soldiers uh, to recover from 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 uh, from the war and so on? Though their their uh, their fields of activity is reduced, especially to the uh, social and private life. Uh, and one of the main uh, main functions of women is giving birth uh, to uh, future soldiers. And uh, just like uh, when you take the capture. The short capture about uh, citizenship in Mein Kampf, uh, just like uh, young men should be granted full citizenship, German citizenship, after they have done their military duties, uh, women uh, should get their uh, full uh, scienceship, uh, their, their full citizenship after giving birth to children. Though there are two different kinds of uh, struggles uh, which gives young people uh, uh, their citizenship for men fighting in the war or be in the army and for women fighting for giving birth uh, as much uh, soldiers or young people as possible. So you don't have a political function for women in Mein Kampf. It's mainly reduced to social and private affairs. You know, if I could add to that, I... You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hitler often compared, I think in at least two or three sections that I read, uh, Hitler compares women to the masses. They're weak, easily influenced, and above all, they want a strong, powerful leader. And women admired and, you know, adored Hitler. So he had many women friends who were his benefactors especially in prison. You know, he had many visitors, obviously. It was like a spa for him at uh, the Lonsberg Fortress, as it were. And the many visitors contributed, you know, food, books, uh, the Remington typewriter on which he typed Mein Kampf. So, you know, women had, uh, you know, sort of a secondary role, you know, politically. 
but th they were very much, you know, in his uh, sort of coterie. And I think, you know, that's, you know, as Utma was saying, they're definitely second-class citizens, but they had that other role of adoration, basically the fans. And if you see, you know, the, the visual imagery in Triumph of the Will, there's a lot of focus on, you know, how the women adore him, how, you know, they give him flowers, how, you know, they present him sort of as this, uh, you know, idol. It would be like, you know, a 21st century, you know, Hollywood idol that, you know, these women respect. Yep. Yeah, can I add to that too? Sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I just wanted to add, so when we're talking about Mein Kampf and, uh, uh, for example, about women in Mein Kampf, we always should bear in mind Hitler is here presenting uh, pictures of, of, of women or of views, a point of views of women, which are very common uh, on a right right winged uh, right wing circle. So that's nothing special. So I, I think we should make clear Hitler is uh, presenting a picture which was, which was very uh, uh, broadly distributed. It was very common uh, looking at so women in this way. They are weak. They are emotional. Uh, they are here to to make comfort and to 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 uh, make a nice home and all those stuff. So that's nothing unusual in the conservative and national uh, fields of, of our society. So we should be careful uh, just distributing all those things to Hitler alone. Uh, it's a quite common picture of women. Yeah, could could I add to Otmar's and and John's uh, reflections here? There's been a lot of talk over the years about the influence of Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great philosopher, German philosopher, on, on National Socialism, on Hitler. And uh, I think a lot of really astute uh, uh, scholars have pointed out the discontinuities between Nietzsche's true true theories, his, his true philosophical work, and and the central ideology of Nazism. But I, but I think that that Nietzsche's misogyny uh, was was one area in which his his thought did um, coincide with the with the misogyny of of the National Socialists. And of course, many people are aware of Nietzsche's uh, uh, anti-feminist uh, statements in his work. And I think in that regard, there is some some continuity between Nietzsche and uh, the National Socialists and Schopenhauer as well. Yeah, and Schopenhauer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If we we. Um... If we, if we focus or if we if we remind ourselves uh, of the basic messages, so to speak, of Mein Kampf, um, these if, if you would have to put it down to two uh, central aspects, it would be on the one hand, of course, it's a constructed autobiography to show that he, Hitler, is the messiah. And the second is that he has found the key to history in a uh, understanding that the struggle of the races is actually, in his point of view, uh, the driving force uh, in all human uh, activity, and that he, for the German people, is the person coming at the right time to the right position. And therefore, women in, all, in these two perspectives have the role, as we've uh, just being described, uh, they are part of this racial struggle, but at their place, and their place is at home, inside, uh, 
to recreate uh, um, an area uh, for men that, so that they, when they go outside, can fight for uh, the survival of their race. That's that's in, in essence uh, what's also in mind Kampf uh, on, on men and women and on history. Yeah, wasn't it, uh, you know, you can correct me, the German expression, you know, the women are involved with, what, the Kirche, Kuche, uh, and Kinder? Yeah, but without the church, it's it's yeah, a, it's yeah. it, that is what the Kinderküche Kirche is a traditional yeah. three case, uh, but for national socialism, the Kirche, the church, uh, is is not part of this. But otherwise, uh, that as Otmar says, it takes up a very conservative national traditional view on on gender and uh, the role of men and women, and national socialism takes this all up and puts it into its perspective of the racial struggle in general. I think Claudia Kunt's book, Mothers in the Vaterland, uh, you know, it gives, you know, many different ideas that we just expressed now. Mm. There's also, if I may, an English one, Elizabeth Harvey's book on, uh, on women uh, as well, yeah. in the East. Can you tell us about the Landsberg prison, can you contextualize this facility for us and its relevance to understanding Mein Kampf? You know, uh, in 2021, uh, we filmed in the Lonsberg prison uh, for our documentary, and the media person who led us through, you know, showed us exactly where you know, Hitler's cell was number seven, and, you know, how it was glorified as a site of pilgrimage. Uh, it was an impressive-looking prison, and it was called the fortress, but it, you know, really wasn't, you know, a, a true type of fortress, but it was there that Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. And, you know, I believe that, you know, when he left the prison, you know, he wanted a picture of himself, you know, looking very, you know, uh, obviously heroic. He just finished his term there in nine months. So he stages the photo in front of the Bayertor and with his Mercedes Benz. And it really wasn't in front of the prison. We have that image of the prison that certainly was a, list, a little less formidable than, you know, the impressive image of the Biotour with his Mercedes, uh, you know, that he just acquired, you know, sort of begging for, you know, the help with getting a discount on his, his new car. Uh, the prison itself for him was a spa. Many people look at it, you know, as his you know, what he maybe refers to as his university, where he had this chance to reflect over nine months, you know, his own past, uh, and, you know, pulling together all of his readings that he had done from the Lending Library in Munich. And he never cites them, but, you know, like, you know, H.S. Chamberlain, you know, or, or Henry Ford, he doesn't you know, give full references to their works uh, and the eugenicists that he read, the Eugen Fischer material, he read his book. And I think that, you know, that 
prison was his time of reflection. Uh, it was easygoing. You had a chance to read the daily newspapers, to meet with you know other individuals who were involved in the putsch, uh, and uh, I believe that you know this was a seminal moment, you know, for him to take that time, you know, to write, you know, his so-called autobiography and manifesto. So I think that you know my images of prison are not exactly <clears throat> what he experienced in this recreational atmosphere. Um, maybe I will uh, add a, a little bit to understand what Landsberg meant. Uh, when we look at the um, left-wing extremists in the beginning of, of 1919, uh, we had a kind of, of uh, a Republic, uh, a Soviet Republic in Germany. And after this one broke down, uh, the activists were uh, uh, brought to Stadelheim. It was a criminal prison. Landsberg was a kind of uh, prisoner of honor. Festungshaft was something different than just simple prison. Uh, we have to look at uh, the first uh, prominent uh, uh, person which was imprisoned in, uh, in Landsberg. It was uh, Graf Arco who assassinated the first German uh, uh, Bavarian uh, minister, pres minister president, uh, Kurt Eisner. Uh, he was sentenced to prison for a few years and brought uh, to Landsberg. Uh, so Landsberg was a kind of imprisonment for right-wing uh, extremists, uh, and this was a prison for uh, so-called ehrenhaft, honorable imprisonment. He didn't lose his... Um, his social rights and political rights and stuff like that. Uh, it was uh, imprisonment for uh, people whose um, whose intentions were accepted or were not criminalized. The intentions of the left-wing extremists were criminalized and they were brought to uh, just normal prison for criminals. Uh, a right-wing extremists were brought to Landsberg. Uh, that was something completely different. And as uh, John described it, it was a kind of uh, prison which made it possible for Hitler, but all the others as well. It was not only Hitler and Hess, there were much more people there, to live a quite comfortable life there and, and have social contacts, uh, being informed about daily politics and all those stuff. So we have uh, a very different uh, dealing with extremists in Bavaria. Left-wing extremists were uh, dealt as criminals. Right-wing extremists were killed as criminals, but very honorable criminals. Yeah, when we interviewed the son of the guard, uh, he read his father's diary to us. And, you know, when I mentioned a spa-like atmosphere, they sang, you know, Nazi songs. They were told to calm down. And they had a sense of camaraderie you know, uh, surrounding Hitler, because it was that kind of atmosphere, you know, it's sort of the honorable detention that Otmar just talked about. But I felt that, you know, at the same time, it was a very serious moment of pulling together history, reflections, personal feelings, uh, political uh, antagonisms, and your desire, you know, as he says, a reckoning with history. So 
you know, I think that, you know, he's, if I'm not mistaken, I could be corrected on this, but he felt it, you know, if he had done simply the political work before the putsch, before the trial, and worked, you know, as a political figure, without that prison time, Mein Kampf would not have been written. He would not have had that time for, you know, a contemplation, you know, fitting together all these pieces of history that, you know, he was thinking about over the years, especially since 1920 when he came to Munich. To put this into the wider context of how we should deal with this in a, in a historical perspective, uh, we can see from what we've heard so far uh, how lenient uh, the actual political view on Hitler and uh, his movement was, not only in Bavaria, but in Germany, in many parts in general, and uh, that it was quite different from how it was uh, against uh, the political um left or even far left and it was not seen as the threat that it actually was uh, to the democratic system and uh, if hitler had stayed in prison as he was sentenced for five years and had stayed for five years he wouldn't have been able in the same way to uh, rebuild his political party or anything like that and uh, different would uh, history would have gone certainly in a very different way if he would have stayed in prison until 1928 or 1929 and so from um, the general perspective you can see on the one hand that um, Landsberg was very important as described before for Hitler's personal development and all the chances he got there. But it is also a reflection of the lack of democratic uh, and judicial, so to speak, uh, self-determination uh, um, to preserve uh, the Weimar Republic in keeping people like Hitler in the political field through this kind of leniency, which would have not been necessary and which was not according, you one might argue, uh, to the judicial principles of the time as well. Of course, of course. Uh, to add to Mag Magus's comment, he, he could have been taken and expelled from Germany once he was discharged from prison and sent back to Austria, which of course exactly. never happened. And that exactly. would have effectively spelled the end of his political career at that point. Yes. What does Adolf Hitler specifically say about Jews and Judaism in Mein Kampf? If we uh, ten hours, yeah, yeah. I will. Sorry, Magnus and Michael could tell you, and I could say the same. I mean, the the basic, if I may start, the basic uh, concept is, uh, and I, I repeat uh, what I said before, is that Hitler claims to have found the clue, the key to history, how history develops in a necessary, in his view, in a necessary way, namely through, as he sees it, the fact that there is a struggle of the races. And this is based on concepts with, which have been developed in the second part of the 19th century um, in combination of uh, Arthur Gobineau, uh, and Charles Darwin and social imperialism and social Darwinism and so on. He takes up all this kind of uh, theoretical concepts and shapes them into one view, namely saying me, Adolf Hitler, 
has been chosen by fate to understand the key to history, the struggle of the races. And I'm here in 1924-1925 chosen to lead the German people in this struggle of the races. And in this racial concept, there is on the one hand the leading, the uh, a cultural race, the cultural productive race, the Aryans. There are several other races and there is the opposite race, the, the challenging, the always threatening race, which is the Jews. And therefore, in this kind of imaginary concept of world history, for him, the Jews are, so to speak, the, so to speak, the eternal enemy, the eternal foe, uh, which one, if one things in these terms of Aryan racial concepts has to fight until the very end. And that's why this ideological concept is the basis for all political concepts that follow, not only between 1925 to 1933 in political speeches, but after 1933 in political actions. So far for me, maybe others can add. Yeah. yeah. Magnus's comments are extraordinarily insightful uh, and historically informed. I, I would just add to that that Hitler is not a systematic thinker. Um, without question, these ideas from Gobineau and from uh, from social Darwinist circles and from from the, from the Pan-German movement of the late nineteenth century, all of these things enter into his thinking. But it's it's a chaotic sort of farrago of bits and pieces and you know, jetsam and flotsam sort of floating around. And it doesn't actually develop into a systematic uh, conception of, of the Jews. So you have you have the Gobineau influence and the Pan-German influence, but you also have what John referred to earlier in our conversation today, the impact of the protocols of the elders of Zion and this notion of, of, a, of a world conspiracy that the Jews... Uh, across the world, international finance Jewry, as they they called uh, this group, had formed to to essentially overthrow civilization, to overthrow the the, the structures of uh, of uh, of Western civilization that go back to the Greeks and to the Romans. And so you had this notion then of of a fight for uh, for national survival, a fight for civilization against this menacing. Um, it, 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 Jewish cabal that has formed and that poses an imminent threat to the survival of, um, of not only Germany, but really all of the world. So this is an existential threat. And for Hitler, uh, probably under the influence of Alfred Rosenberg, he comes to identify Judaism with, um, with communism and with Bolshevism. So we see that fateful equation then of this uh, this racial menace, this cultural menace, the civilizational menace posed by the Jews, along with uh, the, the threats of, of, of communism. And all of this then gets knitted into Hitler's uh, biologism, his notion that society is, 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 is like an organic body. And as both Otmar and, um, and Magnus have pointed out, these ideas are not unique to, to Hitler. He's picking up on on strands of uh, of thinking from the 19th century, again, which portrayed society very much in biological terms. And of course, for Hitler, German society is like an organism, or is an organism, and the Jews then are likened to, to microbes that are infecting that organism. And this is an equation that comes out very forcefully, very vividly in Mein Kampf. 
so this all then becomes a basis to to this uh, this really uh, uh, you know, just virulently racist and anti-Semitic ideology, which carry which will carry national socialism socialism then through the 1930s and into the 1940s. And I would add the religious element to it. You know, as he quotes in my call, as he says in my comp, that you know when you know he says all these things about the Jews. And his his own idea of persecuting the Jews, he feels he's doing the work of the Lord, and you know, it's still this in his mind is this mindset, which is a a millennial uh, kind of thing, two almost two millennia, that you know the Jews are the killers of Christ, and you know that was something that was obviously in the air. Because, you know, Germany at the time, uh, you know, Otmar Magnus, you know, could, you know, probably know more about it than I. But, you know, when I'm reading Luther, you know, uh, of the Jews and their lies or reading, you know, uh, the the Gospels of Matthew and John, we already see that anti-Semitism that Michael just pointed out now, that it, it permeated that whole thing. So... You know, he came, he was obviously a baptized Catholic, but he never practiced. Um, this idea of uh, the Jews as the race, religion, culture that destroyed civilization, you know, runs all the way through Mein Kampf. And I pinpoint, you know, that this was already in the air. You know, the hatred of Jews... And, you know, the idea that, you know, Jews, you know, did ritual murder, they're cheating uh, the, you know, Gentiles, all of that comes out in a polarity in his language throughout Mein Kampf, you know, calling them, you know, vermin, lice, bacteria, you know, the Koch, uh, the Dr. Koch who, you know, studied microbiology and bacteriology. So, you know, we were saying that he's the one who discovered this, but he wasn't. This was already in the air for centuries. The medieval ideas of, uh, you know, Jews as the enemy, burning them at the stakes in Nuremberg, the images in uh, the iconography, the paintings of the 15th century, you know, all of that, you know, indicates that this was part and parcel of the zeitgeist of that time. And besides, you know, what we've just said, the political, uh, the racial, the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, you add the religious factor. Yeah, well, if I may add some some points when... Going back to Ari's question, what does uh, Hitler tell us about uh, Jews and Jewry in Mein Kampf? I, I would shortly say nothing new. Uh, and that's the point, I think. Uh, and that's what uh, critical uh, observers, even from the right-wing side, uh, said when, when Hitler published Mein Kampf. Uh, some of them uh, mocked at him and asked, why did he write this book? He doesn't tell us anything new in this book. Uh, so it was nothing uh something special uh, in this time and uh i would like to to point out uh, and and uh, john 
mentioned it a little bit. Uh, I think uh, the the main aspect is uh, that there's a struggle between idealism and materialism uh, through history, uh, starting obviously with the French Revolution, uh, and that the two main races which represent idealism are the Aryans or the Germans. Uh, that's not always quite clear. And on the other side, the, the carrier of materialism uh, are the Jews. Uh, on a religious level, on a political level, on an economical level, political level, whatever you take. Uh, that's the great antagonism through history, an, an idealistic thinking and acting and a materialistic acting and thinking. And from this perspective, uh, capitalism is just another side of the same coin, uh, which carries also communism and Bolshevism. Both are materialistic and the caring race are the Jews. So that explains as well why the Nazis make uh, the Jews responsible for capitalism and Bolshevism and communism. Uh, so they are the anti-race, the Gegenrasse, as they were called later on, which were uh, representing the idea of materialism through the history. And the other race, Aryans, Germans, whatever you call them, uh, are the representatives or the carriers of the um, idealistic idea in history. And that's the main antagonism throughout all the history. And you know, a film that reinforces exactly all of that is Eternal Jew that came out in 1940. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're, you know, looked at as the rats, they're dirty, they're filthy. And, you know, this image, you know, was so popular you know, and, you know, it went over into France, of course, where they have these big exhibitions on the eternal Jew. Uh, he's the nomad. He has no place. Uh, he is the scourge. He's the plague that caused the bubonic plague uh, in the United States. You know, they're blamed for, you know, many of the uh, difficulties economically uh, Henry Ford in his International Jew that was published in, you know, in German, each copy of, you know, the book was placed in a Model T Ford coming right off the assembly line. So, you know, America inherited this, you know, over uh, Hitler's desk at one point, he had a picture of Henry Ford. And it was Henry Ford, you know, who, you know, really, you know, tried to take over many of these ideas of how bad Jews were. And, you know, this was shared with Hitler as well. And, you know, that nod to him in Mein Kampf, you know, shows you that, you know, there is something. The Dearborn Independent, you know, was put into this German translation. So I'm sure that there was a lot of connections uh, between Germany and uh, America dealing with the same topic of anti-Semitism and the hatred of these Jews, you know, who brought about, you know, our difficulties economically, uh, in terms of civilization and so on. But uh, I, if I may add, I, I would uh, point out that we have really to uh, distinguish between uh, what is um, traditionally a, a religious conflict, uh, a, a, something 
which can be um, seen all over history, as, as as you mentioned it. And then there is a caesura in the 1850s and 60s, where it uh, develops into a different kind of uh, confrontation. Um, if you uh, are a Jewish in uh, 1750 and 1780 and 1820 and you uh, become a Christian, uh, you are no longer Jewish in the sense of this interreligious uh, struggle. Uh, after 1850 and after the development of these racial concepts uh, assuming or claiming to be based on natural sciences as people um, uh, in the anti-Semitic movement, and, and the term anti-Semitism is coined 1879 by a German journalist to specifically uh, uh, point out this new kind of uh, formerly religious confrontation, which is no longer a religious confrontation, but is based on a new theory, namely the the racial theory and the race struggle theory. And we have to see that this race, race struggle theory has some new claim also for those who are following it, namely that they no longer can go along the way of interreligious uh, struggle or interreligious uh, conflict and say, okay, if someone leaves his religion, he's no longer part of the, the old one and he becomes a new one or leaves religion uh, completely. It is now something which is, so to speak, genetically in your body and you cannot avoid being part of this genetically uh, shaped group. And therefore, the uh, eternal struggle is no longer something you can choose, but which is given to you, and you have to make your own consciousness according to this given genetical uh, concept. And that is something which is determining the political options during this period. And that's why it is so important to understand that Hitler, on the one hand, saw himself as the exponent, as the missionary who wanted to bring this message of the new natural science-based racism to his people and to understand for them that they are not doing something in terms of a religious conflict or something, but that they are fighting for survival in, in a world-wide uh, dimension. And therefore, uh, as we've seen, or as we've talked before, uh, behind everything that is anti-Aryan and anti-German, be it Bolshevism, be it democracy, be it Christianity, there is in the end the Jewish concept of destroying the consciousness of the Aryan race. And that's what is, so to speak, at the heart, at the essence of National Socialist ideology and is also at the essence of uh, what is uh, mainly in, written down in Mein Kampf about Jews. This is an extremely important point that Magnus is making, and I, I would just point out, too, to, to back up his comments. Hitler repeatedly says in Mein Kampf that Judaism is not a religion. It's not a religion. It, being Jewish is not to embrace the Mosaic Code or some aspect of, uh, of the Torah. Being Jewish is a racial condition, not, not a religious situation. That's a re really important feature of his thinking. You know, a concrete uh, discussion of a lot of this issue 
of you know the genetic uh, makeup of a person came out with uh, Sister Edith Stein, and uh, she was born Jewish. She converted uh, to Catholicism in 1922, and she became a Catholic nun. And then she was sent to Auschwitz, where she died. So she was looked at as a Jew and, you know, not as a Christian, a Catholic nun. So that's where, you know, a lot of these issues, you know, are, is, is it a race? Is it a religion? And obviously in this case, you know, she was still a Jew. What were the similarities and differences between Adolf Hitler's ideas in Mein Kampf and his ideas in his second book? Oh, his second book is mainly on foreign policy, uh, and uh, it's about reflections on foreign policy in the period when it was written after the elections uh, of 1928. Um, and uh, so uh, that's why it wasn't published uh, later on, because it was rather specific on, on um, current foreign policy issues and would have, um, yeah, it was not opportune to have it uh, known to the public at the time, but Ottbar can can extend on this, I think. Yeah, well, the second, so-called second book, the title is... is it's is, a third, uh, actually, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's actually it's the fourth book. Yeah, okay. And so, <laughs> uh, well, we have well, Mein Kampf's first volume, Mein Kampf's second volume, and we know Hitler was working on a, on a book about his uh, memories about the uh, First World War, but he never finished that book and, and nothing survived. So it would have been his fourth book. But, but anyway, it's dealing, as Magnus said, with uh, foreign policies. Uh, interestingly, dealing to a great extent with the United States. Uh, they don't appear in Mein Kampf uh, to, a, to a great extent. Mainly it's France, it's Great Britain, uh, it's Soviet Union. Uh, the United States are... Well, not really on the on the as we call it on the radar of Hitler. Uh, they are just somewhere outside. Although they had a magnificent magnificant uh, influence on the second on um, the first world war, uh, that's astonishing. Uh, and I think it's uh, one of the reasons why he wrote the book. Uh, he was not seriously taken as a politician who has a, a, a concise concept about uh, foreign policies for Germany. Uh, he's just talking about ideological aspects, uh, um, citizenships, about Jews, about women, whatever, but not really on, on foreign policy. And I think he felt... Uh, that there's something missing in this concept, uh, a real concise uh, thinking about foreign policy for uh, a coming national socialistic state. So from an ideological point of view, this book isn't very interesting. From a, interesting, from a, a foreign policy aspect, it's very interesting. And especially uh, you see his, uh, his new formed picture about from the United States. I think that's the really in interesting part of this book. Well, you know, two things that I think come across in terms of foreign policy. He did not see democracies working, maybe. And secondly, you know, the idea of the growth of Germany, even at the very, very beginning, you know, talking about, you know, German blood and Austrian blood, the Lebensraum, I think on page three or so, uh, he begins talking about, you know, how we have to grow Germany. And, you know, I think that's, you know, fulfilled 
you know, in what I think, you know, Operation Barbarossa was, where the Marxist and the uh, Jewish ideas merge. They develop into one, you know, almost phrase, a, you know, a Jewish Bolshevik or a Bolshevik Jew. And, you know, those are linked together in, you know, a sort of this foreign uh, idea of making Germany great again by, you know, moving on to Russia. I think some of this is explained in David Crow's chapter. You know, the Lebensraum concept, as is, Otmar is uh, just indicated, is, is crucial uh, to, to the second book, right? So essentially, he's saying that in order to, to survive as a people, the Germans are going to have to drive uh, for, for more land. And where is that to be gotten? It's to be gotten in the East. So this is going to require a robust a robust army, uh, because there are already people living in the East, and they're going to resist in efforts to displace them. So already there's a concept, I think, of of, uh, of warfare, of uh, inevitable and necessary warfare built into the second book, which makes it, as or said, a really important text from that standpoint. What kinds of ideas are and were espoused by Adolf Hitler about international relations? What assumptions did Adolf Hitler make about how the world works? What were his perspectives on the nature of politics and great power politics? Yeah, that's at the center of, of Mein Kampf, actually. Uh, his uh, idea about politics and nations and international relations is that uh, nations are, so to speak, um, entities shaped by the people of these nations and that they have to be pure. That's why in the German nation, all people who are regarded as not belonging to this people, to the folk, should be excluded and all those who are seen as part of this should be included. That is the reason why he wants to add Austria with the Germans. That's why he wants to add the Sudetenland. And uh, that is, so to speak, also at the time accepted by international relations because when you see how Whitehall reacts, uh, how the KDRC or, or Paris reacts, how the United States react, they in the first uh, uh, few years accept uh, that Germany under the leadership of Adolf Hitler is rebuilding, so to speak, a Germanic uh, state and that they don't want to interfere with the inner developments. But that is not everything or that's not sufficient from Hitler's point of view. And that's why you have to read Mein Kampf and to listen to his speeches, because when you then uh, look further, you see that he regards um, the struggle between the nations and the international relations as the, uh, so to speak, the extended version of what is happening between the individuals and the people who belong to the individual races. So from the German perspective, there are uh, nations and, and countries which are closer, like Great Britain. Hitler always wanted to have a close relationship to Britain. There are other nations which are closer, like Scandinavia. There are others, uh, so to speak, the second level, which are regarded as inferior but as future countries of colonization, which is particularly the so-called uh, areas in the East, 
that which is also written in um, a living space in the east is the catchword in uh, both Mein Kampf and in uh, his political speeches. And then on the global level, you have uh, the ideological struggle between, on the one hand, National Socialism, on the second hand, Bolshevism in the Soviet Union, and the third hand, the democratic system represented by Britain and the United States. And from Hitler's ideological perspective, these kind of uh, um, political systems are both shaped, as we've already mentioned, by Jewish conspiracies to undermine the Aryan uh, consciousness of the Germans and uh, the their ability to dominate uh, uh, their living space in Europe and beyond. And that's why international relations have to be shaped along this kind of struggle, always with having the consequence of leading a necessary war in mind. And the key word there that Magnus just used is necessary. And I think that, you know, Hitler specifically refers to Malthus, to the Thomas Thomas Malthus in his uh, in his work. And and there is a a sense of of the the finitude of the resources needed to sustain civilization that 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 underlies Mein Kampf and so many, I think also so many of his speeches, and Magnus would be in a better position to talk about that than I, but nonetheless, from what I know and what I've read, this 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 concept of a necessity that is driving the Germans forward, we must seize more land, this is a Malthusian sort of idea, in order to, to, to solve the Malthusian problem, which is one of finite resources and an expanding population. How do you adjust the the availability of foodstuffs and and, t and territory to this burgeoning population. Well, that, that can only be solved in Hitler's view through the acquisition of more land. So at that point, then we we circle back then to the Lebensraum concept of both Mein Kampf and the second book in Hitler's speeches. And of course, this becomes the, the primary substrate then of his foreign policy by the late, the mid to late 1930s. And, were poised at that point then to, for the invasion of Poland and then the Soviet Union to, to seize those territories. Two areas of international interest to me are uh, what Hitler is talking about in my comp, the Rhineland bastards, the influence of the colonies. And right after uh, World War One, you have the influence of the, the Senegalese troops, well, French troops, coming into Germany and literally poisoning the blood of Germans, the Rhineland bastards. So images of, you know, what these uh, mixed race into, uh, young people look like, you know, it frightened, you know, some people because it was called the plague, uh, something that was... Uh, destructive to the pure Aryan blood. So the influence of other races, uh, he often blamed, obviously, the Jews for, you know, bringing in a black trade or controlling the black trade. And secondly, you know, what I'm more concerned about right now in my reading is the influence of the German South Africa uh, colonization. And, you know, one of the links, and maybe Magnus could talk about it more from his research, but the influence of Eugen Fischer uh, and the Herero peoples in what is now Nambia, uh, 
Samantha Powers in her book about 20th century genocide begins with Armenia, 1915. But you know, more and more scholars have been developing this idea that the genocide uh, might have begun in 1904-1908, and Eugen Fischer was there early on to study, you know, basically what became a whole new field of anthropology. And, you know, his book was read by uh, Hitler, and, you know, I believe that the Axion T4 that you were interested in you know, it came out of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute where Eugen Fischer was. So I'm I'm trying to understand a little more about that area of, you know, did these ideas of genocide, you know, of power and manipulation, you know, of a people come into effect early on, you know, in the Nazi thinking. Well, maybe Magnus could explain, you know, some of his, you know, understanding of that. Shall I? Hey. Yeah. Well, um, that is a very much discussed area in in recent years, and uh, it is um, very important to understand the differences rather than this to to stress um, what is take taking over in in recent discourses. Um, as if the um, colonial policy of the 19th century and the early 20th century until 1914, which is not only colonial policy in Germany, but also by Britain, by France, by Belgium, by yes. the United States, if you, uh, one must understand uh, the motives behind this um, colonial policy before 1914. What is what are the reasons uh, for this? It is the understanding in the uh, political elites, in the political leaderships of all these countries that there is um, an upcoming competition of great powers in the 20th century and that this um, 20th century competition is shaped on the struggle of a military competition, on an economic competition, of a scientific competition, of a demographic competition, and so on. And the basis, uh, when these people think at the end of the 19th century about what they shall and must do as a political leadership for the 20th century, they regard colonies as an essential part for resources, be it for men, be it for material, be it uh, for food and so on. From this point of view, they develop a colonial policy which tries to control these areas and to get as much control as possible. There are, on the one hand, those countries which are already uh, very much colonial powers like Britain and France and Russia, uh, so to speak, if you see Russia as a colonial power uh, in the direction of Siberia. And there are others which are coming a little bit later, like Germany uh, and others. But at the, at the heart of all this colonial policy is the motive of controlling power for economic, demographic, material reasons. There is, of course, the idea that there is uh, the whites are a superior race and so on, that they're bringing civilization to these countries. But at the heart is the preparing of the, for the 20th century for one's own country. And there is no 
assumption of a necessity of a continuous and permanent struggle where you have to defeat or even to kill other people because if they are colonialized and they work quietly, everything is fine. The difference to the Third Reich and National Socialism is that the concept of living space in the East for Poland, for the Soviet Union, for all the areas which uh, in Adolf Hitler's and the National Socialist concept shall be conquered, is already shaped by the assumption that immediately when you conquer these areas, you are confronted with the racial existence and people there. And you have several uh, hierarchies of races. You have, for example, in Poland and the Soviet Union, the Slavic race, which you can use for forced labor and so on. And you will conquer areas where there are millions of Jews. And from the concept of national socialism, there is a necessity because of the assumption of racial struggle to uh, destroy this kind of counter race. So it's a, a completely different concept when people conquer the areas of Namibia in 1904 or five regardless of that there is a genocide happening in this colonial practice, with the concept of uh, Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler and Albert Speer and, and Joseph Goebbels conquering the Soviet Union or Poland in 1939-1941. There is an immediate assumption that this racial struggle is now brought into this open field and one from the National Socialist perspective must do whatever is possible to kill as many of the opposite race as possible. And that's completely different to what is done in Namibia or in Belgium, Congo, or in, in French territories or others. You know, I think that you make, Magnus, because uh, I know, you know, I've read, you know, many different, you know, um, interpretations of the killing of fifty to 60,000 uh, Nama or Guerrero peoples, you know, different intentions and so on. But I think adding that notion of, you know, the colonial power and its objectives, because, you know, the, you know, major Berlin conference at the turn of the 20th century, you know, had the same kind of idea about resources. You know, you know, like uh, the British in Kenya, you know, having a type of gulag or concentration camp, the idea of, you know, the Belgian Congo and the resources going to Belgium. Uh, so I think, you know, when you add the racial and the economic, you know, that does make that distinction of what happened in German Southwest Africa in 1904 to what happens in the Third Reich, especially in the 40s, you know, as, you know, Operation Barbarossa starts to, you know, uh, starts up and so on. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I would I would just point out, too, I mean, along, along the lines that Magnus has sketched with colonial policy, and I, I can't I can think of very few exceptions to this, but there is sort of a almost a natural law of how um, how massacres, how genocidal massacres in particular break out within the colonies. And they almost always seem to involve uh, a pattern of, of domination by the colonizer and then resistance or rebellion by the people being colonized, which then leads to reprisals 
in the form sometimes of genocidal massacres. And as, as, as Mactus rightly points out, with National Socialism, you begin with with the repression and with the with genocide. You, you, you don't move in that direction as a response to rebellion by by the subject the subject peoples. It's a fundamental difference between uh, uh, national socialist policy, especially in Eastern Europe, and uh, what happened in the in the colonial realm during the 19th and early 20th centuries. How can your volume, in general, and Mein Kampf in particular, shed light on the debate in Holocaust studies between functionalism and intentionalism as interpretations regarding the unfolding of the Holocaust? Well, I'll let that up to Magnus and Michael, because we were called from our publication Extreme Intentionalists. So, you know, that's what the Wikipedia article says. <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, if I could jump in here, then Magnus, maybe you can, you can help me out too a little bit with this. But um, as I approached the book with, along with John, I was not even thinking along the lines of the functionalist and intentionalist uh, debate. In fact, I had, I had thought of it as being more or less relegated to the past. It seemed like a fairly stale sort of uh, conversation that not many people were uh, animated by um, You know, at the time that we were thinking about the symposium and then about the book. But then as I began to, to, to read Mein Kampf and as I began to think more about it and I began to prepare my my talk at our symposium and then subsequently the essay, uh, functionalism and intentionalism kind of moved to the, the forefront of how I was thinking about what I was reading. And maybe for people listening to the podcast who, who don't know, uh, functionalism is the idea, and Magnus, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it's the idea that, that Hitler's role in, uh, in the final solution ultimately was one of just sort of providing a general tempo or a general um, uh, framework of ideas within which policymakers who were at the lower levels, who were actually on site in, in Poland and in occupied Eastern territory, uh, moved and operated so, so that a lot of the concrete decisions and policies were actually crafted by, by these lower echelons in the, in the power structure. So that if you tend to de-emphasize Hitler's controlling directorial influence on the process, then that makes you more of a functionalist, right? The, it's, the, the decision-making and the policy setting was was, was lower in the ladder of, of authority. If, however, you believe that Hitler was very directive in, in issuing orders and pushing this process of destruction forward through his uh, through his uh, apparatus, his, uh, his policy ex uh, executors in, in Eastern Europe, and if you believe that Hitler came up with the idea of the destruction of European Jews earlier on, rather than arriving at that later during the war, and perhaps even at a decentralized level, you know, if you emphasize Hitler's role in this process, then you are an intentionalist, or you you lean more in the direction of intentionalism. And I think that anybody who reads who reads Mein Kampf, and I did, I, I read it, I read both volumes and read all the footnotes, and I, I, had, I guess I had started as being much more of a functionalist in my thinking, which I think is where a lot of a lot of the scholarship has been over the past fifty years. Um, but as I read Mein Kampf, I just came to the conclusion that Hitler really was meditating violent solutions to to the so-called Jewish problem. 
uh, already in the 1920s. Magnus, you talk at great length about the importance of reading Mein Kampf within the context of Hitler's speeches, and if we, or, or even his interviews with various journalists. And if we do that, he's already talking about hanging Jews in the 1920s. When I, you know, when we come to power, we're going to hang them from lampposts and then move across the country and hang the Jews in, in, entirely. Uh, there, there are all kinds of culminations against the Jews that are they're really quite violent. You, you don't find explicit statements of of violence against the Jews or threats against the Jews in Mein Kampf itself. But as I try to argue in my in my article, I, I think that 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 the text uh, bristles with with intimations of of violent solutions because of the extremity with which he portrays this threat posed by the Jews. They they're a threat to to Germany. They're a threat to the health of Germans. They're they're a threat to world civilization, to Western civilization. As as Magnus says, it's the threat to the German consciousness, right? That will unify the German people. The Jews are subverting this, and so I think implicit in in his language is the notion that at some point we're going to have to move towards violent solutions to this problem. Although again, you don't find explicit statements of these threats uh, in Mein Kampf. Yeah, if I I should add uh, the um, uh, this juxtaposition between functionalism and intentionalism uh, has of course had its its role in in the late nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties in in producing this kind of um, arguments which uh, Michael has has just uh, um, described uh, so eloquently uh, with uh, with these. Um, at the time, you, you, one might say much less knowledge from the sources about um, what the actual uh, anti-Semitic policy was uh, and about uh, the the real actual um, work and thinking of the perpetrators. We only have this concrete direct perpetrator resource uh, research since the 1980s. <laughs> Before that, it was rather vague about the people at the top. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was uh, Hitler and a few uh, uh, cronies, uh, Himmler, Heydrich, and so on, who, in a totalitarian way, shaped the uh, the Third Reich and ordered from above, and everyone followed, and the German people were just following orders and so on. And that um, changed when people uh, started to research about institutions and, and people saw that institutions were competing for the favor of Hitler and so on. And in this competition, the radicalization process began and what uh, what has been called cumulative radicalization from 1933 to 1945 moved on. And by looking at this, they often overestimated the role of this competition uh, and and neglected uh, the influence of individual orientations, particularly by the by the ideology. And so, as a result, these two concepts of intentionalism and and functionalism were put, brought forward as maybe you would say juxtapositions of both. Um, uh, uh, concentrated views, and and over the past uh, three decades, we have seen 
from the analysis of uh, diaries, of letters, of the analysis of individual perpetrators' uh, lives, of, uh, if you think of Christopher Browning's uh, book on ordinary man, which, which was really a, 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 um, a sea change in, in our understanding of this, uh, we are now at, at a point where we say, uh, well, on the one hand, um, and I, I can only stress this uh, repeatedly, we must take Hitler seriously and we must read him. And as Michael has pointed out, uh, he has uh, his experience with reading Mein Kampf. I, I, I can only recommend if you want to understand the Third Reich and to understand uh, how National Socialism developed after 1933, you must read Hitler and you must read his uh, Mein Kampf and his speeches. And then on the other end, you see that people at the time after 1933 also, of course, listened, followed and uh, supported Hitler. And they did this because they had a similar worldview developed, either developed from previous anti-Semitic and conservative and nationalistic views, or they became convinced through the success of what uh, Hitler's foreign policy, particularly after 1933, made for uh, the majority of the German people. They saw him indeed as a messiah who was successful with all what the uh, republican and democratic leadership between before 1933 failed and therefore they saw him as someone who was sent by heaven to uh, this kind of ideological uh, salvation and so this is combined that um, more and more people uh, became convinced even during the war through the success of the war against Poland and against France that Hitler was a chosen uh, leader and therefore his ideological view was obviously in their view also uh, correct and right and they should follow him and so this is this combines that the ideological uh, 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 productivity or, or a concept or imaginary of, of Hitler on the one hand with his worldview, which we have now repeatedly mentioned, and with many hundreds of thousands of people in the German, particularly in the functional elites, who followed him in the similar way. So this combined gives uh, this kind of radicalization, which um, is then during the war, of course, combined with the uh, understanding that if they lose the war, they will be taken uh, for to responsibility for all what has happened. And that in the, in the past two years of the war also shapes the motivation of many of the German uh, people to go on with this war because they know what they have done already and they will, uh, they, they see that they have to go on with himself. So we can use these terms, intentionalism as functionalism, as tools to uh, to to approach this kind of understanding. But we must not stop there. We must take this complexity further and uh, take it to to uh, to understand uh, the 40 years of research since then, since these uh, terms have been brought up and which will then bring us much more clearly the complexity of this uh, process um, uh, to our understanding. Yeah, one one thing I'd like to add to to Magnus's comments too, uh, when he was talking about institutional analyses, which pushed to the forefront the, the these intermediate offices then that 
mediated between the the top of the Nazi power structure and and the actual on-site right. enforcers of, of Nazi policy. Um, without question, the, you know, the social scientific aspect here is very very important. But I, I sometimes wonder too whether there may not not have been a, a psychological allure. Uh, to, to functionalism for for many people, and, and but I'm speaking even of myself, perhaps to a certain extent. It, uh, I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea that a single individual, a, a single truly malevolent individual, could impose his uh, uh, maniacal uh, and destructive ideas upon the world in the, in the the manner in which Hitler appears to have been done. If we take his if we take his ideology and his influence seriously, which I, I'm more inclined to do, especially after reading Mein Kampf, but it's a very, di very discomforting sort of thing. And uh, yeah, he was not alone. I mean, that is the, uh, the, the and and we are going back to, to Mein Kampf. In Mein Kampf, you see dozens of traditions from different kinds of milieus and strands of society. You see anti-Semitism, you see nationalism, you see racism, you see anti-Polish views, you see anti-Bolshevist views, you see anti-capitalist views, and so on. And uh, the um, the concept of Hitler is to to merge this to, so to speak, one convincing political concept, namely uh, uh, ideologically based on racial struggle. On the one hand, and to offer, uh, the, to to uh, put this into the political practice and to show that he can. That's a difference to many others who are um, uh, walking in this field, from Eric Ludendorff to Rosenberg, who never became successful politicians because they were not able to shape a political and to, to organize a political party. And we have to see that Hitler, on the one hand, was this ideologically driven, uh, uh, convinced uh, person with a missionary zeal. On the other hand, he was a constant uh, political agitator who, who ma made it his life uh, to to pursue his, uh, uh, this kind of, of policy. And the others did not have this kind of drive in the sense uh, that Hitler had. Uh, but he needed he needed um, hundreds of thousands of uh, followers and uh, millions of voters to come into this position. And he only uh, uh, had this kind of uh, success because in the minds of these people, there were parts of what he uh, suggested already there that's that's important to know it does not come from he he doesn't you know put it from above it's it's there and he awakens it so to speak it's maybe the wrong word but he he he, he uh, is able to motivate to see in him the person who who uh, fulfills the wishes they already feel you know i think that that's visualized very very well you mentioned you know, Hitler as the Messiah, you know, and I believe that there are a few steps, you know, you asked about, you know, how it leads to the Holocaust, but I think, you know, the propaganda of the word, of the image, then the idea of the law, and then lastly, the violence to, you know, make sure that the law is implemented you know, will gradually be a few steps 
toward the Shoah, toward the Holocaust. And, you know, one image that I, you know, I, I can't get over when you say the Messiah, the opening of Triumph of the Will, 1934 Nuremberg rally. Hitler descends upon this beautiful city of Nuremberg, which Hitler sees as the most German of cities. You know, he descends from his plane to his faithful as, you know, the idea is. And it gives a type of Christian martyrology. How many years from this? How many years from the great defeat of the war? Hitler comes to his people. And he is really God sent, you know, as he comes through the clouds and lands at the uh, airstrip in Nuremberg. So I think that images reinforced time and time again throughout, you know, whether it's the speeches, where it's whether it's the uh, art or film. I think that, you know, this has to be front and center, uh, you know, to keep Hitler in the forefront. I I would fully agree, and particularly is in the opening scene of of Triumph of the Will. Uh, the uh, image of uh, the aeroplane uh, and its shadow in the um, in the sky is like a cross coming down on you know this it's the shape is like a cross coming down on Nuremberg to the fateful and so on. But that's of course, of course, Leni Riefenstahl knew what she did. Yes, you know, in terms of uh, there's a new book, not a new book, but recent uh, Boys in the Boat with the Washington, University of Washington rowing crew coming to the Olympics in 1936 in Berlin. And there is this relationship of Lenny Riefenstahl and Goebbels in these terrible fights about the visual imagery of how you have to present the German people. And Hitler, you know, on the pedestal, and, you know, you're right. This is all orchestrated by Lenny Riefenstahl, how it should look. So Hitler does come, you know, to his faithful, you know, in Nuremberg. Yeah, as, as John's and uh, Magnus's remarks, I think, strongly suggest, getting back to your original question, I, I, I think that our, our book, by looking at Mein Kampf and taking Mein Kampf at its face and, and probing its contents and trying to see it from different angles, I think we are very much recentering Hitler in the history of, of the Holocaust, which is really kind of the, the title of our, of our work, Mein Kampf and the Holocaust. We wanted to explore the extent to which the the writing of Mein Kampf uh, might have had connections then with uh, what happened in the 1940s. And so I, hopefully we've been able able to do that to a certain extent, but I think it really restores uh, the figure of Hitler to this conversation. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to convey my heartfelt gratitude to you for your time, thoughtfulness, attention, eloquence, and erudition. I could not be more grateful. Well, thank you. Ari, thank you, Magnus, Michael, Utmar. You know, I am thank you from me as well. Yeah. You know, I am a new disciple to all of this material, so I really depend upon you know a lot of your scholarship. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. <laughs> Ari, thank you. Standing, we are all standing. Yeah, on on the shoulders, and I mean, and it goes on. We we should provide shoulders as well. Yeah.
And Ari, thank you for having us. We really enjoyed it. Yes. yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Yes. I can hard thank you. I can hardly thank you enough. As as we, our, as we end our dialogue today, I'm your host on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with the editors of and contributors to the volume, Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust, published in London by Bloomsbury Publishers, 2022. The editors of the volume are Susan Michalczyk, John Michalczyk, and Michael Bryant. During the course of this dialogue, I've been in dialogue with John Michalczyk, Michael Bryant, the contributor, Dr. Otmar Plokinger, and the contributor, Professor Magnus Brechtken. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you.